is that today is basically the, the day that we finish our Hamlet lecture. Um, and then you'll have lots of time for discussion on um, Friday in section. So um, what we were talking about last time was the extent to which Hamlet's situation is like the situation of various other characters in the play, and therefore the extent to which Hamlet is different from the various other characters in the play. Um, Hamlet himself will talk about how all occasions do inform against him. This is his last soliloquy in Act 4. Um, this is, if you have the Norton, it's Act 4, Scene 4, line um, 9.23 in their bizarre, page, in their bizarre lineation. Um, <coughs> page 1757 of the Norton. But <coughs> what's happened is Hamlet sees Fortinbras um, cross the stage. He's off to fight a battle for <coughs> a piece of land, as Hamlet is about to say, that isn't large enough for the people who will be killed in the battle. Um, and yet he is about to do it. And Hamlet sees Fortinbras doing this while he, Hamlet, is about to be sent off for, to England. And um, Hamlet says, look at Fortinbras and look at me. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. That is, I'm not taking revenge and I don't know why. And here again, um, <coughs> it's um, another incident has been thoughtfully provided to me by God or Shakespeare, to be redundant, um, telling me what I should be doing, spurring my dull revenge. Everything I see tells me that I should be, um, shows me how I should be acting. I see Fortinbras, and that shows me how I should act. I see Laertes, and he shows me how I should act. Um, hang on to this, because it explains what might otherwise be a little bit of a puzzle that we'll look at at the end of Act Two in a minute. Um, but I keep seeing things which provide me models for how to act, things which hold a mirror up for me to look at and then mirror myself upon. That is, a, a you could say, an angled mirror. Um, <clears throat> so that I should see in Laertes someone whom I can mirror myself upon. I should see in Fortinbras someone I could mirror myself upon. But I don't. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? If I'm not taking action, if all I'm doing is surviving. A beast, no more. Um, and Hamlet spends a lot of time wondering about the difference between humans and beasts. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. But <clears throat> why am I not taking revenge? And now Hamlet gives a self-analysis. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion, am I just like a beast, only feeding 
and sleepy. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking to precisely on the event, um, event here means result. Um, it's actually somewhat surprising that they don't footnote that for you. Event meaning an incident is actually a 20th century use of the word. Event is closer to eventuality, how things will end up. So whether I am thinking too precisely on what the end result will be, what I will have done, what I will have caused to happen, what the truth will and outcome will be, is it some craven scruple? Am I looking, as someone suggested on Friday, am I looking for reasons not to do this because I'm craven and cowardly? Where are the scruples from? Is it bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event? A scruple, a thought, which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward. I do not know, whatever the reason is, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do. That is on the to-do list, not, uh, not crossed out from that list. Um, why yet I live to say this thing's to do. Sith, I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. So he gives four reasons, four theories of inaction that he's not sure he has the cause to kill Claudius, but he says he does. Or perhaps he doesn't have the strength, and yet he does. Perhaps he doesn't really want to. He doesn't have the will, and yet he does. Perhaps he doesn't have the opportunity, and yet he does. So he has all the possible things that you need to act. These are the philosophical necessities, the necessary and sufficient conditions for action. Cause and will and strength and means. That's what action comes from. When all those four things in, are in place, you will act. And yet he won't and he doesn't know <coughs> why he won't. But the two possibilities are that the one quarter chance that Claudius is innocent, three parts coward and one part wisdom. The one in four chance that Claudius is innocent, or he's simply someone who likes sleeping and eating. Um, now, that second possibility that Hamlet is simply someone who likes sleeping and eating, that doesn't seem right. Um, it's true that he's fat. This is mentioned later in the play. Gertrude says, our Hamlet is fat and scant of breath. Um, on the other hand, he's not very sleepy. Um, and the reason he's fat is that the actor who played him, Richard Burbage, was fat. Um, however, um, it's clear then that somehow, if there's an answer suggested here, an answer which puzzles Hamlet himself, so he doesn't know why he's not doing it. But if there's any answer, it's the genuine possibility that Claudius is innocent and that the ghost hasn't told the truth. Now, he's set up 
the murder of Gonzago, that play, Gonzago, about Gonzago and how he's murdered. Um, he set up that play, he tells us, at the end of Act Two, and we'll get back to the end of Act Two in a minute. But he set up that play in order, as he puts it, to tent Claudius to the quick. He wants to see how Claudius will respond to the production of a play which shows what he is alleged to have done. So it's a pretty good trick because if anyone has any pangs of conscience, they'll see this play, and if they've done what the play is showing, they will freak out. Now, one interesting thing, I think, and I'll, I'll just say this very quickly, is that Hamlet is asked by the king um, what the name of the play is. And Hamlet lies about what the name of the play is. He says it's called, and the lie may just be a joke, but he says um, that the name of the play is The Mousetrap. Of course, Claudius would then be the mouse. Um, why? Because it will trap someone. But what he doesn't tell Claudius is that the name of the play is The Murder of Gonzago. Now, probably no one would notice this. Um, however, I think there's an interesting possibility, very deep in Shakespeare's mind here, which is that in, on some level, what he's doing, Hamlet says the story's intact and written in very choice Italian. On some level, what Shakespeare is doing is he's saying, my play Hamlet is actually a retelling of a story which did exist. Um, that is, Hamlet isn't lying when he says that. The murder of Gonzago was a story that Shakespeare knew about. And Hamlet, or Shakespeare, is saying, my play actually <coughs> takes as one of its sources this story, the murder of Gonzago. Um, and I'm retelling or reusing or absorbing that story into Hamlet, which takes as its main source stories of a, Danish, of a crazy Danish prince named Hamlet. But I'm also combining that with another story. That is the story of the murder of Gonzago. Now, that story, Hamlet says, is extant. And when Claudius says, what play is this, Hamlet lies to him and says it's the mousetrap. And I think the reason he lies to him is because he knows or thinks or suspects or worries that Claudius knows the play or the story, The Murder of Gonzago. And if Claudius does, first of all, he would be prepared for the shocking scene that is supposed to um, cause murder to out with most miraculous organ. But secondly, because there's an interesting possibility here, which is that Hamlet suspects that Claudius got the very idea of murdering his brother from reading or seeing this play in the past. That is, that what you have is a work of fiction which gives a real person an idea for a murder they might commit. Um, and works of fiction do do this, as we know from people who complain about Fight Club. Um, works of fiction do spur imitators who think, cool idea, I could do that. Um, so 
the reason, has Claudius read this story? I doubt it. I think, in fact, what we're, and I doubt Shakespeare wanted us to think he did. I think, in, however, we're getting some insight into Hamlet's mind, which is that Hamlet sees models as telling one, giving one models for behavior. If the end of playing is to hold the mirror up to nature, to show virtue, her own face and vice, her own countenance and so on, um, it also does it in order to show a kind of picture, this is what I suggested a few minutes ago, that a person might imitate. Hamlet will say that to his mother in a very odd moment in her closet when she says um, to Hamlet, um, what you've, you've shown, you've, you've made me look very deeply into myself, what shall I do? This is on page 1751, Act 3, Scene 4. Um, Gertrude says at line 147, O Hamlet, thou hast cleft my heart in twain. And Hamlet replies, O throw away the worser part of it and live the purer with the other half. Good night, but go not to mine uncle's bed. Assume a virtue if you have it not. Um, then skipping <coughs> the italicized part. Refrain tonight. And that shall lend a kind of easiness to the next abstinence. Once more, good night. Um, and the queen says, what shall I do? And Hamlet replies, strangely, not this by no means that I bid you do. A line that I've puzzled over for many, many years um, but finally came to the conclusion that it made sense. That is, of course, it makes, makes logical sense. It's just, she says, what should I do? And he says, not what I'm about to tell you to do. By no means do what I'm about to tell you to do. Namely, let the bloat king tempt you again to bed, pinch wanton on your cheek, call you his mouse. So now we know the other mouse who's trapped and let him for a pair of reachy kisses or paddling in your neck with his damned fingers make you to ravel all this matter out that I essentially am not in madness but mad in craft. T'were good you let him know for who that's but a queen fair sober wise would from a paddock, from a bat, a jib such dear concernings hide who would do so, etc. Um, and so he's basically saying don't do this. Um, don't start making out with him and messing around with him and having all sorts of um, sexual interactions with him and then telling him the truth. Um, that's what I bid you to do. Don't do it. Now, that double moment where he says, do this, but don't do it, that's like holding the mirror up to nature to her. And what he's doing is he's giving her a kind of um, repulsive model. And he's saying, use this repulsive or repellent model that I'm now going to give you a very vivid representation of. 
as a model for what not to do. So again, it's a kind of holding up of the mirror where you get mirror reversal. But Hamlet is consistently and always likes to fantasize or produce vivid imagery or even produce plays and certainly produce pictures and portraitures and mirror images of the kinds of things he's concerned about. He likes to imagine them and represent them to himself. Yeah. In the speech, uh, Hamlet's speech, where he's um, talking about taking action, he seems also to be in that scene pretty critical of aristocracy um, and the whole system. Um, yeah. And uh, to what degree is that confused as the mirror? This idea that he's going to look towards um, toward the rest as how he should be behaving, taking action when he also criticizes that action. Is, I mean, it's basically well, part so of wisdom seeing that as kind of Well, so, yeah, I mean, Hamlet is critical of everything. Um, but that means he's also critical of himself. And once you're critical of everything, including critical of yourself, you start becoming critical of your universal criti criticality. That is, he has to worry about the very, about um, his, uh, his being critical of everything, including himself. He has to worry about all of that. And Hamlet, I mean, just, just to, to put this in more general terms, um, <clears throat> and then I really do want to get back to this question of representation, which is an important one, and which we've been talking about from the start. Remember, we talked about revenge as a kind of representation of the original crime. Um, putting on a play and taking revenge, well, for Hamlet, they become um, parts of the same action. But the general situation, what makes Hamlet a revenger, what makes him out of um, the loop when it comes to appealing to any authority figure at all, including God, for help. What the situation that puts him in is that he has to be, with respect to Claudius, not only the executioner, which is what would make him the revenger, is if he executes Claudius, but also the judge who decides that killing Claudius will be justice, the jury, therefore, who decides whether Claudius is guilty and therefore gives it to the judge to decide what penalty Claudius will suffer. Um, so Hamlet has to play the role in his own mental meditation on the on what he knows about Claudius and whether Claudius is guilty, um, going backwards in order of, um, of action, executioner, judge, that is person who um, gives Claudius the sentence of death, jury, that is group of those who decide whether Claudius is guilty or not, but they decide on the basis of the prosecution which Hamlet undertakes himself because he doesn't believe the ghost. The ghost is a witness, but not a prosecutor. And the ghost is, of course, a witness who can't be sworn because he's dead. Um, in a real life case, you're not allowed to bring ghosts into, um, I think you are in Texas, but otherwise you're not allowed to bring ghosts um, into capital cases. 
Um, in Texas, you just get the conviction a little faster that way, and it's all good. Um, but so Hamlet is the prosecutor, but who's Claudius's defender? He doesn't have a defense attorney. Well, he does, Hamlet. Um, Hamlet has to be, if he's going to be scrupulous, he has to be Claudius's defense attorney also. Now, the law at the time, and this is an interesting historical fact, fact of legal history, um, I'm going to give you a very, very simplified version of this because it's all really complicated. But the very simple version of this is that when you were put on trial in around 1600, when you were put on trial in the early 17th century, there was a judge, a jury, and a prosecutor, but no defense attorney. And the reason there was no defense attorney well, there are two reasons. One is, or there are two related reasons. One is the source of our Fifth Amendment. <coughs> you could not be compelled to testify against yourself in your own case. So defendants, at least defendants of Claudius's rank, aristocratic defendants, this is star chamber um, procedure. Um, defendants could not be compelled to give their version of what happened. Not only could they not be compelled to give their version of what happened, defendants were not even allowed to volunteer their version of what happened. Defendants were silent, as they are in practice in most um, criminal cases now, but were silent absolutely in trials then. <coughs> And the reason was, as the great jurist Cook put it, about 25 years after Hamlet, um, the reason was that in order to prove someone guilty of a crime, you had to prove them guilty so, in, in a much stronger version of proof than what we now have in the legal system. You had to prove them guilty such that no defense could prove them innocent. That is the way trials work now is first the prosecution presents their case and they say, so here's why it's perfectly obvious this person is guilty. Um, and then the defense comes up and says, well, no, actually the reason I had that gun in my bag was I was about to go MacGuffin hunting. Um, and you may not believe me, but I really was. And that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for what I was doing with that gun. Um, and that introduces reasonable doubt. Or the defense will say the way Perry Mason always says, or the way in John Grisham novels um, things always work. Um, no, I didn't do it. I can prove to you that she did it. And then the defense provides another explanation of what happened. And that other explanation then brings in doubt as to the prosecution's theory. So what the defense does in modern trials is the defense comes up with another theory of what happened. And if that other theory is plausible, then the jury is supposed to find reasonable doubt. Um, so the defense, though, is given a chance to come up with ideas for what might have happened. Now, what ha again, what happens in a modern trial is the defense will say something like, um, I can show that I, that I couldn't have committed the crime um, because my mother 
was there and she claimed that the shotgun went off accidentally and that my brother was killed by accident. I'm just making this up out of whole cloth. Um, not. Um, but then the prosecution gets to call the witnesses that the defense gets to cross-examine. And the prosecution gets to try to poke holes in what the defense says has happened. In Shakespeare's day, this wasn't true. You were entitled to any possible story that a judge or jury could come up with by which you wouldn't be guilty. The proof had to be so absolute, not that a particular defense was shown to be false, but that no defense could be true. And the way Cook puts it, Cook is spelled Coke, by the way. Um, you may have seen the name, and, and um, um, Sir Edward Coke was, or Cook is, is um, extraordinary, of extraordinary importance in English legal history. <coughs> the way Cook puts it is that the court itself, that is the judge, is counsel for the defense. The judge, you don't need a defense lawyer because the judge is coming up with plausible scenarios by which the defense might be found not guilty. The court itself is on the defense's side. And therefore, the defense doesn't speak. But rather, those who are charged with determining the guilt and then punishing that guilt once it is determined are also charged, or in particular, the judge is charged with looking for any possibility that the defendant is innocent. And that's the situation Hamlet is in. He is honor bound to look for any possibility that Claudius is innocent. He is morally bound. If he doesn't do that, he is doing something morally corrupt. And the question for Hamlet, what he doesn't know is how to resolve a moral conundrum, which is, on the one hand, to take revenge over the death of his father, but on the other hand, to give Claudius the benefit of the doubt that he is entitled to when he doesn't even know that he's on trial. So Hamlet is in a situation where he is playing victim, or at least survivor of the victim, and is therefore highly prejudiced against the accused, um, relative of the victim, prosecutor, judge, jury, executioner, and also defendant. And um, he has to do all of those. And part of what's going on in the play is um, another important idea, which is the idea sometimes called moral luck. And the idea in moral luck, or the question of whether there is such a thing as moral luck, is a philosophical question. But essentially, <coughs> what Laertes and Fortinbras and others might say is, Hamlet is probably, or well, what Laertes would say is Hamlet is probably guilty. First Laertes says Claudius is probably guilty, but then he changes his mind and says Hamlet is probably guilty. Um, if Hamlet were modeling himself on Laertes' 
exactly. What he would say is Claudius is probably guilty. I'll take the chance, which is what Laertes has said. He would take the chance. Come what comes after his death in the other world, Hamlet could say, I'll, I'm sure enough, I'm 95% certain, well, actually 75% certain, but let's say 95% certain that Claudius has killed my father. I'll take the chance. And if he didn't, I'll go to hell as a murderer. But if he did, I'll go to, I'll, get, I'll be excused as someone who was following the dictates of justice. So that's one way of thinking about this question. That is, it would be very unlucky for me if Claudius turned out to be innocent. I don't think my luck is that bad. So I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to risk my soul. And I am going to kill him. Now, that, is a, that, is, that idea, that attitude, would be an attitude supporting the idea of moral luck. That is, that attempted murder, for example, is a less heinous crime than murder. That two people shoot at two other people um, in two different incidents. And in one incident, the first shooter kind of misses and injures but doesn't kill the person that she shoots at, and that person recovers, and the first shooter is sent to jail for five years for attempted murder. The second shooter, intending exactly the same thing as the first shooter, succeeds and kills the person, and the second shooter is sent to death for life or is executed. They haven't done anything different. One was luckier in her outcome than the other. And so they're treated differently. And it's a hard question whether that's right or not, to treat people differently on the basis of an outcome that was a matter of luck rather than a matter of intention. Now, in fact, we do treat such people differently, and I think we'd be appalled not to. Um, <coughs> but that difference in treatment isn't quite a question of morality, um, but it's an expression of something like outrage or relief or something like that. But as pure moral philosophy, it just seems very hard to justify the idea that a lucky outcome justifies an action that if the outcome had unluckily been different, would not be justified. The guy who shot McKinley, for example, um, McKinley would have survived if they'd used the x-ray machines that they had around the corner at the World's Fair in Buffalo, but they didn't have the idea of using it. Or McKinley would have survived if they didn't think the right thing to do was to bleed him to try and help him over this infection. But McKinley got, died, and his assassin um, what, um, died of TB in prison. Um, and was almost executed. Um, Hinckley shot Reagan at a time when medical um, procedures and protocols were better. Um, had Hinckley shot McKinley, um, Hinckley would have been an assassin rather than a would-be assassin. Had the guy who shot McKinley shot Reagan, um, he would still be agitating for um, um, furloughs 
from wherever he'd be in, or who knows, he might be freed by now. Um, that's all a question of luck, not a question of moral intent. So what Hamlet might think but doesn't is if there's a good chance that he's guilty, I'll take that chance. That's what Laertes would think. But Hamlet doesn't think that. What he thinks is, I can't kill him on the hopes that he's guilty. I have to know that he's guilty. Because even if he is guilty, but I don't know it, I'll be committing murder. It's only not murder from his point of view, the point of view of, of wild justice. It's only not murder, not if he's guilty, but if he's guilty and I know that he's guilty. Only if I have proof that he's guilty does my killing him not come to murder. Yeah? How, how does that idea of moral luck relate to the idea that um, God or uh, some deity will sort all things out on earth as well. And so if you take revenge and you succeed, then obviously it was the will of heaven. Yeah, well, if you take revenge and succeed, um, then <clears throat> on some level, especially in a predestinarian level, it's the will of heaven. Um, and what Hamlet himself says is, the heavens have punished me with this and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. But notice that he's punished by that fact. And what he's thinking of is a line of Jesus's, which is that um, it will be that offense comes, but woe to him from whom the offense cometh. That is, yeah, it is God's plan that people will do bad things. And for Luther and for Calvin, um, it's so much his plan that he actually causes people to do bad things and then punishes them for it. But it matters that they get punished. That is, that if you take revenge for the wrong reasons, that might be part of God's plan, but you still get punished for being that part of God's plan. Um, God is able to do all this stuff. Um, he does it in Paradise Lost as well. Um, that is to say, he says, yep, Adam and Eve, they're going to eat the fruit. I could stop them, but I'm not going to. Um, and one reason that I'm going to do it is so that Satan thinks that he's going to be victorious, but things are actually going to get even worse for him because I'm going to get to punish him more. Um, so God allows um, these figures to do things to each other um, that are part of his plan. In fact, he makes them do things to each other that are part of his plan, and then he very happily punishes them for doing these things because they're wrong. So there's a disconnect between the rightness of the general plan and the wrongness of um, what people do that nevertheless conforms to the general plan. Um, again, in modern day, it's entrapment. That is, if you, if you set up a sting operation, um, the defense will always say, we were entrapped, we would never have tried to sell these stolen iPhones um, um, if the FBI hadn't set up this place and asked us to sell them. It's all their fault. Um, and the FBI will say, no, it was a really sweet operation, and what we did is we proved you were, you were willing and able and, in fact, did do something illegal. And it's not a defense to say, no, I was, we were just doing, we were just part of a, of a sanctioned FBI operation. Um, and that's what it would mean to say, woe to him from whom the offense cometh. So Hamlet is perfectly willing to believe. Hamlet does believe that Claudius is a bad king. Um, I don't think he's right to believe that, but he does believe it. 
Um, he believes Claudius is a bad thing, is a bad king, and he's perfect. Well, he calls him a thing too. The king is a thing of nothing. He believes Claudius is a bad king, and he believes that it might very well be God's plan um, to get rid of Claudius by having Hamlet kill him, um, and that's fine. Then Claudius is gone, and that's all good. However, it's also a really, really um, clever plan on God's part because God also gets to get rid of Hamlet that way. God doesn't love Hamlet. God thinks Hamlet is evil. God gets rid of Hamlet, and he kills two Danes with one stone. Um, kills two Danes with one Danish. Um, that is what Hamlet sees as his being punished. He doesn't think that there's anything wrong with Claudius dying. What he thinks is there's something wrong with his murdering Claudius. And it's only not murder if Claudius is proved guilty. Claudius's being guilty isn't enough to stop it from being murder. It's only not murder if he's proved guilty. Um, my mother told me that in law school, her, her first great moment was um, her professor, who is a sort of um, um, paper chase, um, John Houseman type, was asking, when is something, um, um, when is something perjury? So if I ask you on the witness stand, if you say on the witness stand, um, John went to the store, what makes that not perjury? And all the other male law students, um, she was one of the um, first female law students um, in her class and in that era, um, all the other male law students were saying, well, if John went to the store, then it's not perjury. And he just kept shaking his head and giving these people dimes and saying, call your mother, you will never be a lawyer. Um, and then asked my mother, and my mother said, it's not perjury if the person on the witness stand knows that John went to the store. The fact that John went to the store isn't enough. Knowing it is what makes it not perjury. Same here. It's not murder if he knows that Claudius is guilty. Claudius being guilty isn't enough. Um, again, this survives in our idea of finding someone guilty, where the word find simultaneously means discovers the fact that they're guilty. That is find, like when you find um, the dollar that you misplaced, but also determines legally that they are guilty, where if someone turns out to be innocent, you don't say to them, you know, just, just imagine, someone, someone is accused of a crime, DNA evidence exonerates them 20 years later. Um, <clears throat> if you go up to them and say, that's terrible that the jury found you guilty, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. You wouldn't, they wouldn't be entitled to say, they'd be entitled to say a lot, but they wouldn't be entitled to say, the jury didn't find me guilty. There was nothing to find. Um, the jury said I was guilty. Because the word find there means makes it legally the case that you're guilty, as well as discovers guilt. And it's that, it's putting those two things together that Hamlet needs to do. He finds that Claudius seems to be guilty at the start of the play in Act One, but he cannot find Claudius guilty of anything until Act Five. And in particular, um, so I'm now going to give you a spoiler for Vertigo. Um, in the middle of Vertigo, um, we 
see a scene that James Stewart, who's trying to figure out whether two people are the same person or not, um, does not see. We see the person who he's examining. We see her write a letter, and we get to read the letter. Um, and then she crumples the letter up, and she doesn't send it. And that letter tells us what James Stewart doesn't know. And that happens halfway through the movie. Um, and um, when Hitchcock made the movie, he put that in halfway through. And his wife and his producer and his publicist and everyone else said, how can you destroy the mystery halfway through the movie? You can't do that. It has to be a mystery until the end. And Hitchcock said, no, it's actually more interesting when the audience knows a truth that the detective figure is trying to figure out, when the audience gets the truth earlier than the detective. Now, I think Hitchcock actually gets that from Hamlet, because we do find out that Claudius is guilty, or it looks like we find out that Claudius is guilty, when Claudius has a soliloquy. And in that soliloquy, which is act three, scene um, four, excuse me, scene three, Claudius is left alone at line um, 36. This is page 1746. <coughs> and he says, oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath a primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Now, it's important that Claudius is alone during the soliloquy. This is like Kim Novak writing the letter alone. And Shakespeare makes absolutely certain that we realize that he's alone. And not only that, but that Hamlet doesn't enter until after he kneels at line 72. Then we get enter Hamlet. Now, Hamlet could easily have entered earlier. But what we're getting here is a very explicit scene that has, unusually for Shakespeare, only three or four functions. Very tiny number of functions for a scene in Shakespeare. Those functions are, first of all, a moral function, which is um, you feel bad when you commit murders. Um, it's also got... Um, a plot function, which is that he's trying to pray but failing, so that when Hamlet doesn't kill him, um, Hamlet could have stopped everyone else from dying, but he misjudges what's going on, because we know that Claudius is not succeeding at prayer, but Hamlet thinks that he is. Um, the idea that you might try to pray but fail has another um, thematic use in the play, which is the way it suggests a relationship between will, your own will, and God's determination of what will happen to you. And wanting to pray isn't the same thing as prayer. Wanting something to be the case isn't the same thing as its being the case. Thought isn't the same thing as getting to the result of thought. But its most important function is a highly dramatic one. And that highly dramatic function is something like this. Shakespeare is saying, I have waited until now to tell you the truth, namely that Claudius is guilty. 
Now, if this scene were not in the play, you would be entitled to assume the ghost was telling the truth. That is, of course we're going to find out one way or another whether Claudius is guilty. Shakespeare isn't going to write a kind of modern play where the ambiguity is such that we will never know a central fact. Of course we're going to find out whether Claudius is guilty or not. Without this scene, we would be entitled to believe that we found it out long ago, that we found it out when the ghost told Hamlet. But this is a scene in which Shakespeare is saying to us, I know you've been waiting to see whether Claudius is guilty or not. And now I will tell you that he is. And if you thought you knew before, you were wrong. Because Shakespeare is saying to you, now you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Now you know that he's guilty. And what you guys should infer from that is we didn't know beforehand. If I thought I knew beforehand, I was wrong. It's only Hamlet who turns out to have been right. Hamlet was the one who wasn't sure. I thought he was wrong. But now the unimpeachable authority of Shakespeare, who gets to say what's really happening in this play, even if no one else does, the unimpeachable authority of Shakespeare is saying, no one knew except for Claudius himself up until this point. And now you know something which no one else knows. And among that no one else, as we say in Danish, among that no one else is Hamlet. He doesn't know. You know he doesn't. And that should make you wonder about whether Hamlet's delay was the wrong thing or not. We'll get back to Claudius' speech, um, because as I've said before, I'm not even sure this proves his guilt. Um, but <clears throat> if anything proves his guilt for the murder of Hamlet Sr., it's this speech. When he says, it hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. When he says a little bit later, my fault is past, but oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder, my crown, my own ambition, and my queen. So he seems to suggest that he actually did kill, Claude, did kill Hamlet Sr. He says, I did the murder. He says, I did it in order to get the crown, in order to pursue my own ambition, in order to get the queen. All of that seems kind of like maybe he did do the murder. Um, nevertheless, Hamlet doesn't hear any of this. And Shakespeare insists on the legal fact that Claudius is incriminating himself only for us, not for Hamlet, not for anyone in the play. When he goes, when he says a little bit um, further, um, may one be pardoned and retain the offense? In the corrupted currents of this world, offense's gilded hand may shove by justice. And oft is seen the wicked prize itself buys out the law. So that's what we saw in Richard II. That is that um, you, you, know the, you know the line, um, none dare call it treason, um, and Ann Coulter, um, the moron. 
um, wrote a book called I Dare Call It Treason, um, showing how courageous she is. Um, so that's actually an 18th century couplet. Most people don't know what the first line um, of that couplet is. Does anyone? Um, treason is near rewarded. What's the reason? Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Treason is near successful. Treason is never successful. Treason is near successful. What's the reason? When tis successful, none dare call it treason. That is, sure, there's plenty of, of successful treason, but then it's not treason anymore. Then it's kingship. So that's what um, Gaunt is saying. That's what, um, what Claudius is saying here. Oft is seen, offenses gilded hand may shove by justice. And oft is seen, the wicked prize itself buys out the law. But tis not so above. There is no shuffling. Really interesting word picking up on Hamlet's shuffle off this mortal coil. There is no shuffling. There the action lies in his true nature. In heaven the truth comes out. And we ourselves, and remember this is in contrast to this world. We ourselves compelled even to the teeth and forehead of our faults to give in evidence. So in the afterlife, when we are judged by God or St. Peter or Jesus or Minos or Radamanthus, in the afterlife, we are compelled to testify against ourselves. No taking the fifth there. But that's different from this world. So Shakespeare, in this very speech in which Claudius is confessing his guilt, is reminding us that Claudius cannot be compelled to confess his guilt in this world to Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. Hamlet never really discusses the fact that like he should be king. That never really enters into it. That he Hamlet should be king? Yes. Yeah. I mean, does he ever, no matter what the outcome is, expect to get out of it alive? Because it, it doesn't seem like that's even <coughs> I don't think he expects to get out of it alive. Um, he certainly doesn't expect in Act Five to get out of it alive. He does resent the fact though that he's not king. Um, that is, he says, I eat the air what Claudius says, this is actually a good good time to get back to the mousetrap. What Claudius says is, um, um, how fares our cousin Hamlet? Um, meaning, how's it going? But the word fares also literally means um, like bill of fare, what do you eat? Um, a bill of fare is a menu. And Hamlet takes that more literal meaning and he says, excellent faith of the chameleon's dish. I eat the air, promise cram. You cannot feed capons so. That is, I get a lot of promises that I'm going to be king after you. What if they're not worth the paper, as, as Samuel Goldwyn said, an oral promise isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Um, this isn't worth the paper it's printed on, these promises. So now, probably, does Hamlet care that he's not king? Um, well, he does call Claudius someone who is propped up between the ambition, between um, the election and his hopes. That is, he does think he should have been king next. Um, but probably more or less out of moral reasons. That is, he doesn't, he's not greedy for it. 
but it is an issue for him. It's not the major issue, but it's enough of an issue that it's, again, something he has to worry about his own partiality about. Um, he has to acknowledge that it's an issue, which doesn't make him an impartial um, investigator of Claudius's guilt. Um, so let's go back to where the players show up, um, partly because I just think this is so wonderful and amazing. Um, and then partly because it, it, we're pursuing our theme in it. Um, so the players show up and Hamlet is really glad to see them. This is page 1728, <coughs> act two, scene two, towards the end. A lot of, <coughs> excuse me, act two, scene two is prose. So it's hard to tell you the exact line number if you don't have the Norton, but in the Norton, it's um, around line 405, enter four or five players. And Hamlet is glad to see them, much as he's been glad to see Horatio before. You're welcome, masters. Welcome all. I'm glad to see thee well. Remember, he said exactly that to Horatio um, on Horatio's entrance. Welcome, good friends. Oh, my old friend, thy face is valenced since I saw thee last. Comes out of Beardney in Denmark. What, my young lady and mistress, he says to the boy actor. By our lady, your ladyship is nearer heaven than when I saw you last by the altitude of a chopine. Pray God your voice, like a piece of uncurrent gold, be not cracked within the ring. Masters, you are all welcome. Um, and then he says, we'll have a speech straight. Come, give us a taste of your quality. Come, a passionate speech. He wants a performance. What speech, my lord, says the first player, the one who will presumably play the king. And then Hamlet says with a very unusual directness, I heard thee speak me a speech once, but it was never acted, or if it was, not above once, for the play I remember pleased not the million. Twas caviar to the general. That is, uh, most people don't like the taste of caviar, even though it's great. But it was, as I received it, and others whose judgments in such matters cried in the top of mine, an excellent play, well digested in the scene, set down with as much modesty as cunning. I remember one said there were no salads in the lines to make the matter savory, nor no matter in the phrase that might indict the author of affectation, but called it an honest method, as wholesome as sweet, and by very much more handsome than fine. So notice that as he's speaking directly, he's also speaking about how good it is to speak directly. Hamlet, the least direct of all figures, the one who has to hide his thoughts and feelings to all but Horatio. Here he talks about how wonderful it is to be direct in speech. And then he's absolutely direct. One speech in it, I chiefly loved. And that's just great. And that also says something about what Shakespeare thought literature was. When people say that Shakespeare was just writing for entertainment and that Shakespeare was just writing popular um, drama and he just wanted, he was writing potboilers of various sorts, well, look at this. Hamlet is saying, I saw a play. People didn't really like it. But there's a speech I just loved. And this may be, as far as I can tell, and I've been on the lookout for such things, this may be the first time that you ever have a character saying, I really loved a speech in a play. I mean, it's so common to us now um, to say that. I love that moment. I love that moment when, whatever, Locke says, Etc. I love that moment. But this is where that starts, or the first time you see that in literature. One speech in it I chiefly loved. Twas Aeneas's tale to Dido, and thereabout of it, especially where he speaks of Priam's slaughter. Priam killed with the fall of Troy. 
Aeneas is now telling Dido that story in Carthage. If it live in your memory, begin at this line, let me see, let me see, and then Hamlet starts reciting. The rugged Pyrrhus like the Arcanian beast. And then he realizes he got it wrong. Nothing like this has ever been represented before. Someone, I'm trying to remember a speech on stage. If you're watching this play, you're worried that Hamlet has messed up the line. Just as earlier, you're worried that Polonius, um, when he says, by the mass, I was about to say something, you think, uh-oh, the actor's forgetting. Um, and you're supposed to think that for a second. It gets you more interested in the real human beings who are there. And Shakespeare's trying to get you to think of real human beings. The rugged Paris like the Arcanian beast, and then he says, oh, it is not so. He's getting it wrong. It begins with Paris. Then he remembers, the rugged Paris, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble, when he like couched it in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry, more dismal head, <coughs> head to foot now, as he total jewels, hardly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted with the parching streets, the lend a tyrannous and damned light to their vile murders. <coughs> so Paris is covered with blood. Um, he had been all black, but now he's completely scarlet, total jewels. If you know, remember the end of the scarlet letter, the last line is, that, is the heraldic um, description on a field sable, the letter A, jewels, that is scarlet. So here's Paris covered with blood, and he goes rushing through Troy to find Priam. Anon, he finds it, the first player picks up. Striking, Anon, he finds him, old grandsire Priam. Anon, he finds him, striking two shorted Greeks. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Priam can't defend himself. Unequal match, Paris at Priam's, drives, in rage strikes wide. But with the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the nervid father falls. Then senseless Ilium, seeming to feel his blow with flaming top, stoops to his base, and with a hideous crash, takes prisoner Paris' ear. Ear. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. So as a painted tyrant, Paris stood, and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Okay, so here's the situation. Hamlet really wants to hear a speech about a revenger. He wants to hear the speech about how Paris revenged the death of his father. Anyone know who his father is? Achilles. Wants to revenge the death of his father by Priam's son, Paris. And how will he do so? By killing Priam, who is the king of Troy, who has caused all this disaster. So Paris is a whole lot like Hamlet. It's as though Hamlet is looking for a model as he does. He likes to think of people who have done what it is that he's contemplating doing. So his father is Achilles. He is Paris. Priam is some version of Claudius. Um, or perhaps of Old Fortinbras, or perhaps of Norway, or ultimately of Polonius. He's certainly looking forward to Polonius. Um, all rolled up at once. We know this is relevant because Paris is about to kill Priam, and he stops and does nothing. 
as Hamlet himself is going to say when, the, when he's looking at the player, he says, look at him, he's weeping for Hecuba. And what do I do? I, a dull, sorry, I'm just looking for the exact line. Um, <coughs> um, he does this all for nothing at line 534 for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? As though Hamlet is himself in a play looking for a cue for passion. He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear again with horrid speech. All this attack on ears. Make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculty of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peek like John dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. So Pyrrhus, for a moment, does nothing. Hamlet says, I can say nothing, as though picking up from that very moment. Pyrrhus stood and like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. Now, I wonder if, uh, no. Um, there's actually, I'll just say this, a very complicated and interesting private pun joke in that line, a neutral to his will and matter. Matter there, the reason he uses that word, which is slightly unusual, but it means the subject of what he's doing, is matter throughout Hamlet is a pun on the Latin word M-A-T-E-R, meaning mother. Um, and will, of course, is will. And um, it's almost certainly the case that the ghost was played by Shakespeare when Hamlet was first put on. So it's almost as though father and mother come up in this line, will and matter. Shakespeare had a son named Hamlet. Some people will tell you Hamnet. Um, they're, both are attested. But I believe um, his name was, was actually Hamlet, um, who was um, one of his twin children. And um, Hamlet or Hamnet died at the age of nine. And one thing that you can see here, perhaps this is how James Joyce read the play, is that, and it goes some way towards explaining why this is a story about a dead father and a living son, is that there's something almost wishful here, as though Shakespeare was saying, I wish that I were the dead Hamlet and that my son Hamlet were alive. And Shakespeare, by playing the ghost, is like the dead Hamlet, and the living Hamlet would then be alive. If that's so, then father and mother are will and matter. That is, will Shakespeare, and then the mother, the matter, the mater, um, as Shakespeare would have mispronounced it. Um, and here's Pyrrhus, the child of will and matter, but the neutral child of will and matter, whose sword is suspended, and he can't take revenge. So here is a story that Hamlet seemed to want to hear. He knew the speech. He loved it. And it's a story which gives him a sense of his own situation and also suggests that he'll get over it, as Pyrrhus does, because Pyrrhus does kill Priam. So one, if you ask yourself, why does Hamlet want to hear this speech now? As always in Shakespeare, there are many answers. One answer, parenthetically I say, is a tip of the hat to Marlowe, whom Shakespeare is rewriting here. Marlowe's play Dido, Queen of Carthage. But for Hamlet, 
It's that he is looking for models, and he's in particular looking for models of people who are thwarted, but who get over it, and who manage to pursue what they want to do. We could just say more simply, but it would be too simple, that Shakespeare is thematizing just this story. Revengers who get thwarted but follow through. The way Fortinbras gets thwarted but follows through. The way Laertes gets thwarted because he wants to kill Claudius but follows through and kills Hamlet. Here, Pyrrhus gets thwarted but literally follows through with his stroke. Um, but I think it's more important to see not Shakespeare as thematizing this, but Hamlet is looking for parallels to guide his own action. And that's why he asks for this speech. But the problem is that it's very hard to say what is being mirrored here. Because on the one hand, Pyrrhus may be like Hamlet, and Priam may be like Claudius. <coughs> but on the other hand, Look at poor old grandsire Priam. And look at Pyrrhus covered with the blood of fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, daughters, sons. The very blood that Hamlet will be covered in at the end, having been responsible one way or another for the death of Polonius and the death of Gertrude and the death of Ophelia and the death of Laertes. Fathers, mothers, daughters, sons. Here's Pyrrhus, murderous, full of blood, who is killing a poor, defenseless king. And Hamlet may rather want this speech to remind himself how appallingly bloodthirsty Claudius was in killing Hamlet Sr., that is, there are two possible analogies you can draw to this moment. Analogy number one, Pyrrhus goes to Claudius, I mean, excuse me, Priam goes to Claudius, and therefore Pyrrhus lines up with Hamlet. But analogy number two, Priam lines up with the dead Hamlet, and therefore Pyrrhus lines up with Claudius. And that's what it means. Here's a moment of Hamlet staging a scene from a play, a speech from a play, in which that very staging is showing how revenge is repetition, how the story that stands for a crime and its revenge, the story can be mapped onto either of them. And the very fact that that story can be mapped onto either of them that the Paris Priam story can be mapped onto either of them means that it's very hard to see and maintain what is absolutely essential for Hamlet to see and maintain, which is the moral difference between him and Claudius. And the only way he can get to that moral difference is if he can prove that Claudius is guilty and that he's not doing it because he wants the crown that he has his own ambition, that he wants the queen for himself as the mother who will love him and dump her second husband. We don't know, but we do know that if Priam is supposed to be Claudius, 
the fact that Hecuba is weeping for him and gets the player to weep for her, the mobbled queen ran barefoot up and down, and she's all so upset. Who is that queen? Well, in either story, she's Gertrude. That is, she's Gertrude if Priam is Claudius. Gertrude will be left a widow. And she's also, of course, Gertrude if Priam is Hamlet Sr., who did leave her a widow. She will weep in both cases. And in both cases, she will be a victim of the crime and of its revenge. Two men she loves will have been murdered. Now, I bring this up because this now solves a problem, which is Hamlet now says to the players, could you put on a play for us, The Murder of Gonzago? I'm going to add a speech. And the players say, sure. Then Hamlet is left alone, and he says, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. It's all really terrible, and look at these players, and look at me. What can I do? Hmm, he says. He actually says that. Hmm. And he says, I know. I'll have them put on a play like the murder of my father before my uncle. That's what I'll do. And then I'll watch him and see what he does. So now the question is, so what did Hamlet want them to do before he came up with this idea? Why did he want a play put on? That isn't, the soliloquy gives him another thing he can do with the play, but he's already decided to put the play on. So what did he want? Well, perhaps he wanted from that play exactly what he wanted from the speech about Paris and Priam. That is, he wanted to see what had happened in order to get himself all worked up and in order to give himself a model for the revenge that he wanted to take. He may have wanted the play not for Claudius, but for himself. He may have wanted himself to see the play that would get him ready to take revenge. Now, what makes that plausible, but also what makes the play much less useful to Hamlet than he wants it to be, is if you go to um, Act 3, Scene 2, when the play is on, um, go to line 230. This is page 1742. Um, <coughs> Hamlet and Ophelia are having a lot of um, uh, obscene interplay. Ophelia not meaning to, but Hamlet doing so. And then Lucianus comes in. Um, and this is, I'm sorry, on page 1741, at line uh, 2. Um, 16, Claudius says, what do you call the play? Actually, we should go back a little bit. I meant to do this fast, but Claudius says, have you heard the argument? Is there no offense in it? Hamlet misunderstands what he says intentionally. And it, what Claudius means, obviously, is, is the play offensive. Hamlet says, offense? No, no, they do but jest, poison, and jest. No offense in the world. That is, Claudius is saying, um, Hamlet is imagining that Claudius is saying, um, is there going to be a crime committed on stage, as in the Spanish tragedy? And Hamlet says, no, 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 it's just jest. They're not, it's poison and jest. No, no murder is going to take place. On, no humans will be harmed in the um, depiction of this play. Um, so Claudius tries another attack. What do you call the play? Hamlet lies, the mousetrap. Um, then he says, 
probably not to Claudius. This play is the image of a murder done in Vienna. Gonzago is the duke's name, his wife Batista, you shall see anon. It is a knavish piece of work. But what of that, your majesty, and we that have free souls, it touches us not. Let the gold jade wince, our withers are wrong. And then Lucianus enters in Hamlet. The chorus says, this is one Lucianus, nephew to the king. And that word nephew is a word you should circle 453 times. What he should have said is son. I mean, excuse me, no, he shouldn't have said brother to the king. But he says nephew. Nephew to the king. Who does Lucianus map onto if he's a nephew to the king? To ask is to answer, I see by your faces. Hamlet. That is, the king here, Hamlet, means to be old Hamlet. But the king may just as easily be Claudius. And then the murderer is not Claudius, but Hamlet. And the word nephew, which is what it was in the original, the word nephew seems to make it more likely that what you're getting here is not a representation of Claudius's past crime, but a prophecy of what Hamlet is going to do to Claudius. He's going to poison him. He's going to murder him in the garden for his estate. Of course Claudius gets up, says, I'm not going to watch any more of this. Of course he does. Hamlet is representing his own murder. Well, what does Horatio tell us? Because Horatio is our reality check. Hamlet turns to Horatio and says, Oh, good Horatio, I'll take the ghost's word for a thousand pound at line 263. Didst perceive? And Horatio says, Yes, you were right. Not. He says, Very well, my lord. Upon the talk of the poisoning, Hamlet is giddy. And all Horatio says is, I did very well note him. Hamlet has not asked him yet, do you agree that he's guilty? And Horatio never does agree to that. There's still the question, though, why does Claudius say I did the murder? Go back. Someone actually mentioned this after class on Friday. But go back to the mousetrap, the murder of Gonzago, and look at what the player queen says. The player king says at line 155 of <coughs> Act 3, Scene 2, um, Page 1740, Faith, so we know the player queen's name is Faith. Faith, I, no, we don't. Faith, I must leave thee, love, and shortly too, my operant powers their functions leave to do. And thou shalt live in this fair world behind, honored, beloved, and happily one is kind. For husband shalt thou, oh, confound the rest, she says. I don't want to hear this. Such love must needs be treason in my breast. In second husband, let me be accursed. None wed the second, but who killed the first? Wormwood, says Hamlet. She goes on. The instances that second marriage move are base respects of thrift. Good Horatio, but not of, none of love. A second time I kill my husband dead when second husband kisses me in bed. So what she's saying is it is a metaphor. It is the moral equivalent of murder to remarry. It's a terrible thing to do. It's like killing a person a second time. Now, I don't think Claudius is really saying, oh my God, this is right, but there's a chance. And that chance would then allow him to say, I saw that play, I saw Hamlet, I suddenly realized what's going on, and by marrying her, I killed him, my poor brother, he died, and I forgot about him. 
And I married his widow. And that's like killing him a second time. I'm just like Cain. It's awful. If he were Hamlet, he would certainly be thinking and saying those things. So do I really think Claudius is innocent? No. Do I think that his, he is proved beyond all doubt as having killed his brother? No, I don't. And certainly not proved to Hamlet. Certain, Hamlet doesn't have proof. So what does Hamlet finally do? Well, Hamlet kills him for what he does have proof for, which is the murder of himself and of his mother and of Laertes. That Hamlet does have proof of, and that Hamlet does kill him for. But something very interestingly, interesting has happened then. We'll just end with this and um, talk about uh, whatever you want in section. But something very interesting has happened, which is we've gone from an attempt to establish facts that occurred before the play began to a struggle between Hamlet and Claudius and the struggle is a fascinating one because it is essentially Hamlet's victorious struggle to make Claudius do something evil so that he can then punish him for that. Hamlet gets Claudius, who is extremely good at only doing what he wants to do. The drama in this play is the way Hamlet, who has no power at all but his own personality, gets Claudius to do something evil, at which point he can kill him. Okay, see you. Remember sections and see you in a week.